following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. As we turn to our Bibles tonight, I'll ask you to turn to Daniel chapter 6, and obviously surrounded by palm branches for Palm Sunday, Daniel in the lion's den would be a natural choice of text. I'm sure you would all agree. Um, but we continue marching forward in our series in Daniel and come tonight to the last of the uh, what would be called narrative accounts or the last of the stories uh, of Daniel's life and in the first six chapters of Daniel. Uh, and uh, as we continue from here, we'll get more into the prophecy that Daniel reveals. I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 6 tonight. Uh, I'll read most of the chapter. I'm going to skip one section in the middle. But if you would follow along, let's read from Daniel chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the satraps and the presidents sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then the men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then the presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document, so that it cannot be changed, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. I'm going to skip down the rest of the narrative here. Shows how the men went before Darius, turned Daniel in, and according to the terms of the law, despite Darius's efforts to free Daniel, he's thrown into the lion's den. We're going to pick up in verse 19. As Darius, having spent a sleepless night worrying about Daniel, comes to the lion's den to see what's become of Daniel. Then at daybreak, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, 
because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no harm of any kind was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Let's pray as we come to the text. Father, we're grateful for this story. This story that is true and this story that reveals much about your character as our God, as a God who acts on behalf of his people. Pray that you would bless this text as we listen to it, that we would be challenged and that we might grow to know you more and live more faithfully before you. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If we look at the uh, text here, a couple preliminary comments are in order. It's been a few weeks since we were in Daniel chapter 5, so it's worth remembering that the last time we saw Daniel, he was serving a different king. Belshazzar was a king who had seen handwriting on the wall, and Daniel was called in to interpret the handwriting that was on the wall. Daniel successfully interprets the handwriting on the wall, and he's given, uh, according to Belshazzar, the third rank in the kingdom for his services. This is uh, not much of a reward, of course, because Daniel's interpretation was that the king would be defeated that very night. So it's a fairly short-lived gift um, that uh, he's getting as a result of his interpretation. But here, at the beginning of chapter 6, we see that Belshazzar's appointment of Daniel as third ranking in the kingdom has continued, whether that's because Darius is honoring that, or whether it's because that Daniel has earned it yet again, Daniel is one of the three presidents over the kingdom that Darius sets up. And so once again, Daniel finds promotion in the court of a king in exile. It should be noted that uh, this Darius uh, causes something of a conundrum for interpreters and has been used as sort of a key uh, piece of evidence for those who would like to undermine the credibility of the Bible. See, we know from history that Belshazzar was king of Babylon, and we know that he was defeated by the Medes and Persians, just like chapter 5 told us. However, according to history, it wasn't Darius that defeated him, it was King Cyrus that conquered Babylon. There was a King Darius, but uh, he came two kings later than Cyrus. And so most of those who are writing about this text and, and want to undermine the credibility of the Bible will say, see, This text was written hundreds of years later, and the author just got mixed up. He got the wrong king here, and this is just a clear evidence that the Bible is not historically accurate. Well, uh, that is an assumption, and there are many good other options for the text here. It's worth noting that um, just as Daniel himself has two names, Daniel and Belteshazzar, one Babylonian, one Hebrew, this was commonly the case, and it has often been suggested that Darius was the Median name and Cyrus was the Persian name for the same figure. In fact, if you look at the last verse of chapter 6, verse 28, uh, you'll see it says, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius 
and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Well, many commentators have said that this verse should be translated prospered during the reign of Darius, that is, the reign of Cyrus the Persian, referring to the two names of the same person. That's one option. Uh, it is also possible that Darius was the, ma- the name of a Babylonian who was set over, uh, or excuse me, a, a Persian who was set over Babylon while Cyrus was off taking care of his other business. Both of these are uh, possibilities. I can't solve the problem uh, once and for all, but I can say that there are so many uh, obvious and clear historical accuracies throughout this story that I don't think it is uh, likely or the best option to just throw the text out because we're not 100% sure what's happening with this King Darius here. With those uh, preliminary comments, I want to look at the story itself, and I want to look at the story here in light of four key points that come out through this narrative. And as we start looking at the the story unfold here, the first thing that I want to look at is that Daniel is a man who perseveres. Daniel perseveres in his faithfulness to his God. If you look at a historical timeline here, um, and, and, and we don't have one exactly in the text, but historically we know by the time Cyrus conquers Babylon, or Cyrus comes to the throne, Darius here, uh, Daniel has been in exile for 65 years. Daniel has been in exile for 65 years serving under foreign kings. This is at least the third foreign king that Daniel has now served under in these 65 years of exile. And if you We don't know exactly how old Daniel was when he was taken into exile, but he has to be around 80 years old here as he is being uh, not only given this position of honor, but now going through uh, this trial that he's facing here. What a testimony to Daniel's faithfulness that after living for somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 years, 65 of them in exile for three foreign kings, we're told that not a single error or fault was found in this man. This is a man who serves faithfully. But think about, think about Daniel for a second. I don't, I don't know about you, but my reaction to this would be, hey, I'm 80 years old. I've served faithfully for 65 years. It's time for me to retire. Time for me to relax a little bit after 65 years of faithful service for these foreign uh, kings. And yet here is Daniel not only continuing to serve, but ab- about to face the most difficult trial in many ways, of of his life. Here's a man who has been found faithful in the food that the Babylonians wanted to give him in chapter 1, or the education that he was uh, put through in chapter 1. Here's a man who has interpreted dreams, who has interpreted handwriting on the wall, who has foretold destruction to kings, possibly at the, the cost of his own head, who has been faithful time after time, chapter after chapter, and here Daniel's called to be faithful yet again. I think this is uh, such a, a, a telling admonition to us early on in our text. I know that I have often had the mindset, and I'm sure some of you have as well, where we think that if we can just get beyond this next hurdle, things will be free and clear. And if I can just make it through college, things will be good after that. Or if I can just uh, keep my cool through parenting, everything will be good after that. Or if I can just get out of the workplace and the frustrations and the conflict of that, then I'll be free and clear. And I think what Daniel calls us to is the reminder that temptation and trial, the need to be faithful to God, is not something that is, exists for a period of our life. It is a call to be faithful to the end. Daniel is found faithful. Daniel is found faithful with no error or fault clear to the end. 
I couldn't help but think, uh, this is a, a quote that many of you will have heard, it's, it's frequently quoted, but I couldn't help but think of the runner Eric Little, who you will know ran in the Olympics, won uh, gold for his country, Scotland, and won uh, fame for himself by not running in the 100-meter dash as he was supposed to because it was held on Sunday, but ran the 400 meters instead, a race four times as long as what he was training for. And he was asked after the race, how was it that you were able to succeed in the 400-meter race? And Eric is said to have responded, the secret of my success over the 400 meters is that I run the first 200 meters as fast as I possibly can. Then I run the second 200 meters even faster with God's help. It's a great quote, but I think this describes well Daniel's faithfulness here. You can imagine the trials he faced as a young man in exile, and he ran hard for his God. And here he is at 80 years old, after 65 years in exile, with God's help, running even faster in the face of trial. Daniel's life is one that fills this role that the Bible calls a great cloud of witnesses. Daniel is one of these great cloud of men who were faithful and who call us to be faithful to our God as well. So right at the beginning of our text, we're brought front face to face with a man who has been faithful, a man who has persevered through trial, through exile, and the final uh, analysis of those around him is that there is no dirt that can be dug up against him over 65 years of public service. Can you imagine? No dirt. And so the final uh, saying of the, the men who oppose him is, if we're going to find something against this guy, it is going to have to be in relation to his obedience to the law of God. The only way to trip Daniel up is to somehow turn his faithfulness into unfaithfulness. This is the only way to catch a man who has been so perseverant in the service of his God. Well, it's exactly what this group of men do. They devise a rule to catch Daniel in his faithfulness, in his faithful, uh, persevering service of his God. And they come up with this law that only the king, only Darius, could be the subject of any invocation or prayers of any person in the kingdom. For 30 days, no one could pray to any man or God except the king. This is somewhat of an unusual law. Um, One would think, um, you know, if Darius is going to be the the, the only God in the kingdom, why is he limiting it to 30 days? You know, I'll be God for 30 days and then just kind of step down for this role after that. Well, most likely this law is not trying to set Darius up as God himself, but rather this is a politically advantageous move where Daniel would be the only one who could appeal to the gods on behalf of all people. And so with Cyrus or Darius, whoever um, this man is, conquering many different peoples, if they would all be required to go to him in order to call upon the gods, this would be sort of a, a means of uniting the empire. The empire will be united because everyone has to come through me in order to call upon the gods for the first 30 days here. And so uh, this is sort of sold as something advantageous to, to King Darius here. Um, and King Darius being told, of course, this is a lie, but he's told that all of the president's satraps and governors have agreed here. Daniel is conspicuously missing, but he's told that they all agree on this politically advantageous law, and he signs it uh, into effect. Well, Daniel, being the persevering man that he is, sets up the second thing I want us to see about Daniel. Not only does he persevere in his faithfulness to God, But in verses 10 and 11, we see that Daniel prays 
to his God. Now, one specific example of his faithfulness is his prayer. And we see that when Daniel knows that the document has been signed, he went to his house where he had windows open towards Jerusalem and he prays. Now, I can guarantee you that if I was about to be thrown into a lion's den, I'd be praying. There's not necessarily anything amazing that Daniel prays to his God when he's at risk of being eaten by lions. But there are two things that I think stand out about Daniel's prayer here. Two things that I want us to see from the text. First of all, we're told in verse 10 that he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Like I said, if I was about to be thrown into a lion's den, I'd be praying. But the question is, would I need to step up my habit of prayer in order to be praying to my God? In other words, Daniel here has a continuous habit of prayer. He has already been praying faithfully. He has already developed a habit of prayer, a lifestyle of prayer, a three times a day prayer where he is constantly going before his God so that when Daniel is placed in a moment of danger, when Daniel's placed in a place where his life is at stake, he doesn't need to change his prayer habits. He is already praying. He is already faithful in prayer. He is already used to coming before his God, bringing his petitions before God, his pleas before God, his thanks before God. See, Daniel has established a pattern of prayer that enables him to meet this situation coming before his God. I'm not sure about you, but I feel like my efforts at prayer often fall to friction friction of life. You remember from studying science, the force of friction. Friction is that force that whenever anything is moving, friction slows it down. You you go to kick a soccer ball through the grass, and the friction of the grass slows it down. I feel like life is a friction on my patterns of prayer. I may have bursts of energy where I commit, I'm going to pray. I'm going to be faithful in prayer. And then the busyness of life and the distraction of life begins to slow down and halt my pattern of prayer where it becomes less faithful. Daniel has established a pattern and a habit of prayer where he is not succumbing to the frictions of life, but enable him to meet this challenge with a faithful habit of prayer. May we develop a faithful habit of prayer that enable us to meet the challenges that come before us. Daniel's uh, habit of prayer is that he continues this habit when prayer is the very thing That is going to get him into trouble. One commentator puts it this way. He says, what's remarkable in Daniel's behavior is not so much that his crisis drove him to his knees, but rather that the crisis didn't break his regular routine of prayer. He didn't hide himself away in an inner room to pray in hopes of remaining undiscovered. When prayer becomes fashionable, praying in secret is a good thing. When prayer is prohibited, praying in private may become an act of cowardice. Interesting comments on the text here. I can imagine what my response would be. I can, I can see this decree coming out saying no man can pray to his God. And, and, and I can imagine myself uh, sort of smugly saying, well, sure, that's fine, but see if they can catch me praying in my head. You know, see if they can catch me if I you know, sign decrees for Darius and him praying in my head all the time. Sure, I'll pray to my God. You can't catch me. Uh, But of course, what Daniel's doing here is maintaining a prayer that is honoring his God in the public presence of those around him. See, if Daniel were to take the move that I I think that I might want to make in order to keep myself secure while being faithful, 
Daniel would, would act, actually be showing the people around him that his God was not as important as remaining secure. If Daniel obeys the law or makes an appearance of obeying the law, Daniel is making the public appearance of saying, okay, I will pray to only the king. No one else is going to know that I'm praying to my God. But that's not what we're called to. That's not the faithfulness we're called to. A faithfulness that makes people think we're not praying to God, that we're not obeying God, is not a faithfulness we're called to. We're called to a faithfulness that does not flaunt our faith, but does exhibit our faith. And I think today, you're going to have more and more challenges and opportunities to publicly display your faith without flaunting your faith. I couldn't help but think as I was preparing for uh, our sermon uh, tonight about the public example of Brendan Eich, the CEO, or I guess now former CEO of Mozilla. Many of you would have seen this week that the CEO of this software company in Silicon Valley uh, was forced to step down from his job uh, because they found out that he had made a donation in uh, in defense of traditional marriage in California's uh, Proposition 8 campaign. And when they found that he had made a contribution to the political uh, campaign, they demanded that he publicly repent of his support of traditional marriage or they would fire him. And he was fired. Um, Here is an example of a man. He did not flaunt his position. He did not go out attacking the position he thought was wrong. He did not go out trying to, to do something dramatic that would show everyone. But when the opportunity came where he either had to repent or stand firm for his faith, he stood firm for his faith. I couldn't help also, as I talked to a number of the students in our youth group who this past Friday uh, faced the silence of many people on a day of silence. For those of you who aren't familiar with this, this is a nationwide movement where uh, on Friday students can uh, decide not to speak for the entire day uh, in order to raise awareness for the lesbian and gay issues, um, particularly drawing awareness uh, for those who would oppose lesbian uh, and gay movement, who would perhaps bully those who identify with the gay movement, and to raise awareness for the acceptance uh, of homosexuality. And many of our students, talking this morning, many of our students faced this issue on Friday, and many were questioned, why are you not participating in the day of silence? Why do you not support the gay agenda? And here again was an opportunity for our students not to flaunt their faith, not to attack those who disagreed with them, but to publicly show their persevering faith in their God. Daniel is a challenge to us. Daniel is an example to us in ways that you and I may have to live out in our lives today. That you would not only persevere in faithfulness to God, but that you would pray and have a habit of prayer, even if prayer is something that would be prescribed. When we see Daniel praying, he continues a habit of prayer, and he continues to pray, even the face of great danger. This, of course, leads to his being thrown into the lion's den. The uh, opponents gleefully run to catch Daniel at his hour of prayer and turn him into the king. It's interesting, although we didn't read this, that uh, the opponents of Daniel know that King Darius is on Daniel's side. And so when they come to Darius, they begin by saying, Hey, Darius, um, are we remembering correctly? You just signed a law saying you could only pray to you, right? And Darius affirms that, and it's only after Darius sort of affirms himself what the law is that they say, Daniel was doing that. And Darius, it says, strives until the sun goes down to get Daniel off the hook. But in the end, there is no way for Darius to save his own face and the own law that he has passed and Daniel at the same time. And so Daniel is cast into the lion's den. 
Well, as we uh, come now to, to the third point, we're going to see that Daniel, having persevered in his faithfulness to God, having prayed to God, Daniel is now preserved by God. And it is uh, interesting to see, again, uh, this is in verses eight, verse 18, just before we picked up, we don't know exactly what happens in the lion's den, but we know what Darius's night is like. And if I were Darius, I'd be in my palace, and I would certainly have a lot of comfort surrounding me. I would probably be getting a good night's sleep. And if I were Daniel, I'd probably be a nervous wreck in a den of lions. And yet we're told that it's actually Darius who's a nervous wreck. Darius, it says, had a sleepless night. No diversions held him. He fasted from his meals and sleep fled from him because he was so nervous and anxious and worried about Daniel. That doesn't seem to be the case for Daniel, though. I would like to know what happened in that lion's den. I don't know about you, but it would be great to get a little picture of what was going on. I mean, did, did Daniel just sort of cuddle up against a lion and sleep the night away? Or, or did Daniel have an angel come and, and sort of chat with the angel all night long? Or maybe... Did Daniel not see the angel? Was Daniel there waiting, wondering whether he was going to be saved or not? We don't know exactly what happens in the lion's den. But we do know that the next morning, a sleepless Darius comes and confronts a calm Daniel, who has spent the night saved by God, who has preserved his life. In the end, perhaps a better name for the story would be Daniel in the angel's den because that is the dominating force that he confronts throughout his night. This is one of the great stories of God's miraculous acts on behalf of his people. Yes, this is a commonly known story, a story we've heard since we were a child, a story that's repeated over and over, a story that probably most people in our culture would know. And as a result, it can at times seem trivial or a a child's story. This is one of the great stories of God's acts on behalf of his people. And we shouldn't miss tonight this story of God coming and saving a man who trusted in him. I think it's also helpful to see in this story a picture of sort of the final judgment and the issues that will come when when God is present with all people. See, Daniel is brought face to face with death. And Daniel is confronted with a den of lions. But Daniel is saved. In the face of death, Daniel is preserved. And we're told that Daniel was preserved because before God and the king, he was found blameless. He had done no wrong. And God vindicates and preserves those who come blameless before him. Now, that's not the case of those conspirators against Daniel. We see in the final verses, verses uh, 24, uh, yeah, verse 24, that the king commands the conspirators to be thrown in the lion's den, and they are consumed, they and their families, before they hit the floor of the lion's den. They too face judgment, but they, not blameless, are rather guilty. And as a result of their guilt, they meet death. This is a picture of what will happen at final judgment when we are all brought before God. And we will all either be preserved or we will be killed forever. We will meet eternal death based on how we are found before our God. I wonder, though, as we think of this story, We think of a man who prays, a man who prays to his God and is thrown into the lion's den. And as he prays to his God and is thrown into the lion's den, he is then saved. This is a great story of God acting, but I wonder if this might be more of a frustration to you or maybe even cause more doubt or anxiety for you tonight. Because see, 
Some of us have prayed about things. Some of us have prayed for God to save us from some trial. And it sure seems like God hasn't saved us from that trial. Maybe you're going through financial loss. Maybe you've lost a job. Maybe you're going through tremendous physical pain. Maybe you're going through a difficulty in your family or in a relationship. Maybe you're going through, maybe you are the family and friends of Peter Steyer. Many of us were praying this week for Peter, and yet it seems as if God didn't answer those prayers. How do we take a story like this? What Do we think of this, well, this was just a story for Daniel, but it doesn't apply to us, or God saves some people but not others, or God is capricious in how he handles things, or maybe, maybe I'm just not trusting in God enough because God doesn't seem to be answering my prayers like he answered Daniel. See, these are all questions that when we face a man who prays and God saves him, come to our minds. So how do we think through a story like this when God doesn't seem to be answering our prayers? I want to say a few things about that. First, we must remember that in Scripture, in God's Word, God is repeatedly described and shown to be both sovereign and good. Scripture reveals over and over again the faithful, sovereign goodness of our God. And if we trust the character of God as He has revealed Himself to us, we can trust that He is working out all events in a masterful story of good of glory and redemption, even if we have no idea how the events around us could possibly be fitting into a story of hope and good and redemption. We can't see it, but God is working it out. And story after story in the text of Scripture could show men who had no idea how things were working out and seemed to be the worst case in the world. You're Joseph in prison. You're Joseph being falsely accused. You're David being trapped in a cave. Where are God's promises? And God is working the story out for good. But secondly, I want you to notice something very clear about the text tonight. Because Daniel prayed, but it sure didn't look from Daniel's perspective like he was being saved, at least at first. Daniel prays. He brings his plea before God, and what happens? He's caught. Daniel prays and brings his plea before God, and what happens? He's thrown in the lion's den. See, our prayer does not mean that we will be saved immediately from the thing that we think we may need to be saved from. And if we think about this in the ultimate sense, if we think about this as a picture of God's ultimate judgment, then this picture will be true of all of God's people. Because in an ultimate sense... This is exactly the proper perspective. If we place our hope and trust in God, and if we persevere in faithfulness to God, and if we pray out of trust in God, we will be preserved on the final day. This ultimately is the right picture. This ultimately is the picture for every person who puts their faith and their trust in God. All those who come in faith and trust in God will be preserved. The details in the middle are up in the air. We don't know what those details will be, but the final end is not up in the air. And so as you pray and as I pray, whatever your circumstances are, we need to trust God who is working things, all things out for redemption, for glory, for his glory, for our hope. And ultimately that will be true of all those who call in faith and trust upon our God. This is miraculous that you and that I calling upon our God should be saved. That God should act on our behalf is the great fact, the great fact of life. And that great fact should lead us to burst forth in exultant praise of our God. Because our God is not a distant God. God is not a name that we call upon or a name from distant past. Our God is a living and active God. 
That's what Darius notes in our text. And that's the final point I want to look at tonight when we see that as a result of Daniel's perseverance, his prayer, and Daniel being preserved, we see that God is praised. Here is King Darius, a pagan king who has no experience with the God of Israel, who says in verse 26, tremble before the God of Daniel. Why? Because he is a living God, a living God. That's the God we serve, a living and active God who saves his people, who acts on behalf of his people. We ought to be astounded at the work of this God. God is praised. Darius praises God for being a living God, an enduring God, a rescuing God, a delivering God, a wonder-working God, a saving God. These are all the truths about the character of our God that come from this text, and that is where the hope of this text lies. For all that we've seen about Daniel, it is this concluding truths about God that ground this text. A living God, a saving God, a wonder-working God, an amazing God. When it comes to the end, we're called to persevere, to pray, to wait for God to preserve you, and then to watch God be praised as he does that for the glory of his name. I do want to ask one last question of application as we think about the praising of God and as we think about this story. See, Daniel, when we talk about Daniel's faithfulness and his perseverance, it's, it's easy to get a picture of Daniel as, as, as a perfect man. He's described as no fault being found in him, as being blameless, as being innocent, and a, and a man in which there was no error. What's wrong with this guy? He's perfect. And we're told that God saved him because he was blameless in verse 22. And so one of the questions that is easy to ask here is, well, is this just a story of God saving some perfect guy? Is this just a story of God saying, ah, there's a blameless man, I'll take him. Because if that's the case, I'm lunch for lions. And you're lunch for lions. Because we're not perfect and people can find fault for us. So how do we understand this story? as sinners coming before God. Well, ultimately, I want us to note that this text is not about being perfect. This text is about a man who rests upon, calls upon, and trusts upon his God. Look at verse 23. Verse 23, we're told that the king is glad and takes Daniel out of the lion's den. And it says, so Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him. Why? Because he has trusted in his God. We're not trying to import some good Protestant theology by saying this is about faith and trust in God. That's what the text tells us. This is a man whose faith in God's promises were such that he would open his window on Jerusalem, knowing that God had promised that if if anyone would pray, looking towards the city from exile, that God would restore the fortunes of his people. See, Daniel is praying out of trust in his God. It is trust and faith in the power and faithfulness of his God that grounds what Daniel is doing. It's a man who daily, who hourly, who three times a day turns his face and gazes upon the promises of God. The key question for you tonight is not, can you say I'm blameless? The key question tonight for you and for me is, are we daily, hourly, resting upon God, calling upon God, throwing ourselves upon God, saying, God, I don't know the details in the middle, but I know your promises and you're faithful, and that is the ground on which I stand. That's the final question for us tonight. It's this very trust in God that shapes Daniel's character as well. Because it's as Daniel trusts in his God, 
It's as Daniel comes into the presence of God that he is molded and formed into the character of God. It's this daily relationship with God that grounds his trust, but also that forms his character into a man who perseveres for his God. And of course, it's this daily pursuit and trust in God that ultimately, from the heart of each one of us, leads us to praise the living God, the saving God, who will rescue all of us from the lions we face as he preserves us for the sake of his son, Christ Jesus, who died to take our place and who will rise, who has risen. We'll celebrate that this coming Sunday as the hope for all of us. So it's that, it is in that strength, and because you see him, that we can say, go and be faithful like Daniel. Let's pray. God, this text is a story of a man whose name is known around the world. In fact, to go out on a street and to say Daniel will probably lead someone to say, and the lion's den. And yet this story is not ultimately about Daniel and the lion's den. It's ultimately about you. It's ultimately about the living, saving, wonder-working God who preserves his people, who put their trust in him. That is a fact that can ground our lives no matter what we are facing. I pray that we would run to that God, that we would run to that vision of your character that you revealed for us in this story, and that we would rejoice in that, that we would be strengthened in that, and that that would ground our call to be faithful and to persevere for the glory of your name. We pray this in the name of our Savior Christ Jesus.